you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. This morning we come to the conclusion of our series through this, these seven letters to the church, churches there in Revelation, and something that you probably, as many of you already know about me, if you don't know about me, I'll go ahead and tell you, I like coffee. I always have, for good or for ill, those two people right back there on the fourth row, my mother and dad let me start drinking it when I was about three. <laughs> it was a different time back then. We didn't use seatbelts. We didn't do a lot of things. I drank coffee at three years old and started and been drinking it ever since. 99 times out of 100, if you see me with a cup of coffee in my hand, it's going to be black, it's going to be strong, and it's going to be hot. That's the way I like my coffee. Now, some of you out there may be a little bit like my wife. I'm not sure she's in here. She likes that iced coffee stuff. If you like that, that's fine. I don't understand it. That's not my way of drinking coffee. In my mind and in my economy, coffee is supposed to be hot. The other day, I came into my office. I had brought a mug of coffee. I guess it had probably sat there until the afternoon, and I reached and grabbed it, and by the time that I got a hold of it, it had kind of cooled to room temperature, and I took a swig of it, and it liked to made me sick in my stomach. I thought, good gracious. The other thing that I really enjoy in the mornings is grapefruit juice. I love a, a, a small glass of grapefruit juice in the morning, but it's got to be cold. Now, sometime back, I, I came down the stairs, and, 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 and there, was a, there was a little glass of grapefruit juice sitting on the counter, and I thought, oh, somebody loves me. Somebody thought that I was special enough that they would fix me a, a glass of grapefruit juice and and leave it down there on the counter for me. And I thought, that, that was somebody's way of saying, Daddy, we love you. You're special to us. And so I came over, and I picked that glass up and took a sip. No, you know what happened? <laughs> One of them kids got up and fixed him a glass of grapefruit juice and got busy and forgot to drink it and left it sitting on the counter. And by the time that I got down there to get some of it, it had already gotten to room temperature, and I nearly spit it out as well. And here's what I want you to know. Coffee is supposed to be hot. Grapefruit juice is supposed to be cold. If either of those get room temperature, they're nauseating to drink. What I want you to know is that a church is the same way. Church, the Lord says, if it's not hot, if it's not cold, if it's lukewarm, it makes him sick at his stomach. We're in Revelation chapter 3. Let's hear the Lord's words himself. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of God this morning. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold re refined in the fire that you may be rich 
and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you that you possess us. We belong to you. Just as we studied over the last few weeks, you've written your name across our hearts. We are your children. Lord, sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that when we're going through the struggles of our life. We have to remind ourselves that you're in charge. You're sovereign. You know all things. That you're not some distant God that just knows all things and is capricious toward us. No, you are loving toward us. And you love us with an infinite love. I pray that that would permeate our thinking this morning and that it would would give the, the tangible hue to the text as we are able to put our hands on it and see it and recognize it for what it truly says. And then use that to change us and to transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit working through us through the power of your word. Pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. You've probably already got the first point figured out there. The church that we're looking at this morning is the church in Laodicea. Um, the church in Laodicea um, is, is, we don't know who founded it. We don't know exactly when it was founded, but we know a little bit about it based upon what the Apostle Paul writes about it in the book of Colossians. Um, Laodicea was, was in close proximity to two other churches. Uh, to the church in Hierapolis, which was located to its north, and to the church in Colossae, which was located more to its east. Um, All three of those cities, Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae, they were all located uh, in the southern region of Asia Minor. Uh, Laodicea lay on the south side of the Lycos River, while Hierapolis lay about six miles to its north on the other side of the banks of the river. Uh, Colossae lay right on the riverbank, about 10 miles away. And in his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul refers to the Laodicean church a number of times. In fact, based on what Paul writes at the end of the book of Colossians, we, we learn that it was perhaps Epaphras who founded the church there, though we can't be certain of that. But the Apostle Paul says this about his trusted fellow worker and friend. He says to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 13, For I bear Epaphras witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, and in Hierapolis. Now, the city of Laodicea was an important city in Asia Minor, what is the modern-day country of Turkey. Chuck Swindoll has noted that not unlike Wall Street, Laodicea was a major banking center in Asia Minor. Money flowed freely through its streets, reflected in its buildings and in its businesses, and yes, even in its church. It boasted of a thriving textile industry, uh, with, with coveted garments woven from special black wool that was 
found only in Laodicea. Besides these things, the city was, was also famous for its medicine. There was a, they were especially known for, for this salve that they produced there from, from Phrygian powder. They would take this powder and then they would put some water in it and it would create a salve and they would use that salve to anoint people's eyes who were having difficulties with, with various issues and ailments. And as a result of all of that, what we know is that this city and these citizens of Laodicea had become quite wealthy. You, you might recall that even last week we talked about how Philadelphia was prone to experience uh, earthquakes. Well, Laodicea also experienced some of those same earthquakes. And in 17 AD, as I mentioned last week, an earthquake was so great that it almost leveled the city of Philadelphia. And, and the city of Laodicea, as well as others in the region, suffered great uh, destruction as a result of that earthquake in 17 AD and and Rome actually filtered a lot of money into the area to rebuild their infrastructure and also to reboot the economies of all of these cities in in Asia Minor but what's interesting about Laodicea is a little over 40 years later in 60 AD there was another major earthquake that hit the area and it just leveled and did terrific damage to Laodicea but here's the interesting part by that time Laodicea had become so wealthy and so rich that it refused any aid from the Roman government. It rebuilt itself with its own wherewithal and its own resources and refused and, and, and basically declared its independence and need of any outside help. It is to the church that's located in this city that is impacted by all of those things that the Lord Jesus writes, and he reveals some pretty interesting things about himself as he does so. Notice the second point on your outline. It's Christ's characteristics, and he tells us in verse 14, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I'm going to give you all three of those points there real quickly. What we learn about Christ is this. He is the confirming one. He is the credible one. He is the creating one. Notice that he says he is the amen. Greg Allen has, has written that, that this word is so often used, just as we've, we've seen in our services already today. It's when someone agrees with something that someone else says, the natural response for us is to say amen, because that affirms what someone else is saying is being valid and true. It confirms the truth of what has been delivered. And in Christ, he says, I am the amen. And what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 is that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so he is the confirming one. Not only that, but then he says, I am the faithful and true witness. In other words, everything that I say is faithful to the truth and it is the truth. And he is writing this to a, to a church that in its own self-sufficiency has decided that, that it is no longer, uh, it, 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 its testimony has been hindered to the world outside. But when Jesus says that he is the faithful and true witness, he not only is the one who's witnessing of his God, but everything he says about God and everything he says to them is true and it is faithful. He is the credible one. And then finally, Jesus introduces himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, we should not recognize this as saying that Jesus is saying that he was the first of all of God's creation. There are some 
there are some religions out there and there are some cults out there that would say that Jesus was the firstborn of creation, meaning that God created him. That is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, the better understanding of this, the Holman Christian Standard Bible has translated it well. He is saying he is the originator. He is the source of all creation. And you can go back to John chapter 1 and read that for yourself. That's exactly what Jesus claims to be. He is the one through whom all of creation came into existence. Now listen, Jesus is saying, I am the confirming one. I am the amen. I am the credible one. I am the true and faithful witness. And I am the creating one. I am the one who has brought it all together. That qualifies him to be able to speak to the church. Because he's God. And he is looking at this church and he speaks to it. And what I want you to know, I would also tell you he is the inerrant one. But your pastor is not. So your third point needs to be changed because I gave you the wrong word. He does not commend them. See, I'm checking to see if y'all are paying attention. Jesus does not commend the church in Laodicea. He condemns it. Make that note because there's no commendation, not one iota in this, in this text. Listen to verses 15 and 16 again. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. See, like a doctor, the Lord investigates and he analyzes and he sees what's going on in this church in Laodicea and he gives his diagnosis. And in doing so, he tells them, you are not cold, neither are you hot. I'd rather that you would be one of the other. But instead, you are pathetically lukewarm. Now, Jesus' words here are often used to support the thought that he would rather you be hot and on fire for him or completely cold and opposed to him rather than being lukewarm and in between. And while I would agree that the Lord would desire for the people of his church to be filled with those that are completely on fire for him and burning with a white hot passion for him and for his glory, I am not at all convinced, especially in light of some of the other letters that we've already studied in Revelation 2 and 3, that Jesus' second choice would be for a church to be cold and opposed to him. Some have made arguments to that effect, but honestly, for me, those arguments remain unconvincing. So how are we supposed to understand what Jesus says here? I would rather that you would be either cold or hot. Well, I believe a little context might prove to be helpful at this point. I mentioned earlier Laodicea lay in between these two cities of Hierapolis and also of Colossae. Hierapolis was located, as I said, on the northern side of the Lycos River. And what was interesting about that is that they were known for their hot water, their, their, their hot springs. Even today, in the same region of where Hierapolis was located in the first century, it is noted that in modern-day Turkey, there are 17 hot water springs there in that same region. And they have tested the water and measured it, and the water that boils up out of the ground, it, it, in the lowest is 95 degrees, and there are some that even come out at boiling at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And the water that boiled up out of the ground, you can imagine, it was used for all kinds of medicinal and therapeutic purposes. This hot water was used for cleansing. It was used for purifying. On the other hand, Colossae, 10 miles to the east, it was known for its refreshing cold water springs. 
That water came from deep within the ground, and when it came up, this water was a valuable means of quenching thirst and for revitalizing the body. Laodicea lay in the middle of those two cities, and it was located on a high plateau, and as a, as a result, it had no springs of its own. And consequently, archaeologists have unearthed the fact that there are aqueducts. They've seen those where they have brought them where, where water was piped in through stone aqueducts from Hierapolis and also from, Laod, from Colossae. And of course, by the time that the hot water from Hierapolis got into Laodicea, it had cooled off. And the cold water from Colossae, by the time that it got to Laodicea, it had warmed up. And it had also taken on all the mineral taste of all of the, the stone of the aqueduct. So that by the time that those who were in Laodicea, with all of their riches that they had, they still had to rely on other water sources. And whenever they would do it, the water had become very emetic. In other words, it caused people to be physically ill when they would drink from it. And Jesus declares that to this Laodicean church that they had become just like their water supply. They had become tepid and emetic. They had become lukewarm and nauseating. And in his paraphrase of Jesus, Danny Aiken gives insight as to why lukewarmness was such a terrible description. He states Jesus' words this way. He says, you are providing neither healing for your spiritually sick nor refreshment for the spiritually thirsty. You are spiritually lukewarm and I will not tolerate you. And that explains why Jesus could say, I could wish that you were either cold or hot. That you would be spiritually beneficial to those who are lost around you. That you would be a place of health and refreshment to those who believe. But as it is, you are useless. You are tepid. You are nauseating. But notice that Jesus not only diagnoses the problem, he identifies the cause. That's the next point there on your outline. Those Laodiceans... They had taken on the mindset, evidently, of the city in which they lived. They had become self-sufficient. They had become ones that didn't believe that they needed anything. According to Jesus, the Laodicean mantra had become, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Jesus tells them that their wealth and their prosperity had lulled them into a state of self-deception. John Stott, he, he... writes that the lukewarm person is someone in whom there is a glaring contrast between what he says and thinks he is on the one hand and what he really is on the other. He says to be lukewarm is to be blind to one's true condition. This was the obvious problem in Laodicea because Jesus tells them you may think you're rich, You may think that you are in need of nothing, but the reality is you are wretched, you are miserable or pitiable, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. To be be called wretched, Jesus is saying you sit back in your smug self-confidence, but the fact is, is that you are in an unfortunate, horrible, pathetic state. And rather than being celebrated, you actually should be better pitied for what you are. These Laodicean believers thought they were rich, but Jesus says they're poor. And the word that he uses, the word patokos, which means to be utterly poor, to have absolutely no resources of your own and no ability to acquire any. And from their perspective, they said they look good. You ever seen that person? You know, 
They walk. They got it. You know, and they, when they walk, they know they look good. They just really need you to know that they look good. Jesus says, you're blind. You don't look anything like you think you look. In fact, he says that they're a lot like that emperor in Hans Christian Andersen's short story, The Emperor's New Clothes. They thought they were robed in the best possible robes that they could have when in fact they were shamefully naked. Brothers and sisters, this is self-deception at its height. It is the belief that all is well when everything has utterly gone wrong. It is believing that what you have and what you possess, the bank accounts, the retirement accounts, the homes, the cars, the possessions, it is the belief that those things will bring lasting joy and provide you with security and prepare you for what is about to come. But Jesus says that if you have placed your confidence in these type of things, then you have deceived yourself. You have convinced yourself that you're in fine shape when in actuality you're in the worst shape that you could possibly be in. Here's the thing. These Laodiceans had, had come to believe that their wealth was a good thing. Jesus said it's the worst thing that could have happened to you. In other words, they would have said the fact that they had become rich was their biggest advantage. Jesus said it's your greatest deficit. James Hamilton writes that the Laodicean church's abundant physical and economic resources had dulled their sense of need for God and the gospel. And Jesus called them to recognize the deep need they had so that they could cease to be lukewarm. When I was studying through this passage, it just kind of hit me. I asked my girls about it. We were sitting there the other day. And I just asked, I said, what does it take to become lukewarm? I mean, if you, if you take a hot cup of coffee and you sit it on your desk, or you take that cold glass of grapefruit juice and you sit it on the counter, what does it take for those two things to become lukewarm? Nothing. Left to themselves, they will become lukewarm on their own. Brothers and sisters, there is a warning right there for every single one of us. Every single one of us, whenever we allow ourselves to become self-deceived, believing that we are in need of nothing, when our confidence and our security rests in something other than in Christ, we will become lukewarm. And listen, our lukewarm state will be attested to most clearly by our lack of devotion and our lack of service. Whenever we become comfortable and we become satisfied with where we are in our spiritual walk with the Lord, whenever we fail to take on the responsibilities of serving the Lord in the areas in which he has called us to serve him, whenever we stop desiring to grow in our faith, whenever we become lax in our discipleship and decide that pressing forward and pressing deeper with the Lord really doesn't hold all that much attraction to us, then we are in danger of becoming tepid. We are in danger of becoming lukewarm. And it will occur due to a lack of attention. And that lack of attention to our spiritual lives must often occur when we deceive ourselves 
into believing that everything is okay and we have everything that we need. Jesus sees this and he diagnoses it. And then consequently, notice the next poem in your outline. He gives corrective counsel. In verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and with white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may be revealed and anoint your eyes with eyesight that you may see. The corrective counsel that Jesus gives, first of all, is that you need to come seek my riches. We need to seek the riches of Christ. Now, we might wonder why he says, why, why did he tell him to go buy that? It, it, we can't buy anything from the Lord. We, can't, we don't have anything to offer him. There's nothing that we can do to buy that. And after all, doesn't Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1 say, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. And yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Doesn't Jesus later say, All of you who, who want to come to the fountain of the water of life, you can come and drink freely, all of you who thirst? Yes, he does. So then why does he say here, come and buy this? Well, I believe, like Greg Allen says, that Jesus is using a bit of sarcasm. You realize sometimes sarcasm can go a long way toward communicating your point. I think that's what he's doing. I think he's saying, look, you who think you're so rich, you who think you've got it all put together, you who think that you don't need anything, you who've forgotten that you need me, why don't you come by the real resources that you need? Why don't you use all of that that you think that you've got stored up and come to me to get the true riches, the refined gold, the, the white wool? You, you've been going and buying all the black wool that's around your area. Why don't you come to the white wool that can only come from the righteousness of Christ? Chuck Swindoll says, in effect, Jesus says, stop trusting in yourself and turn to me. He writes this, he says, In place of dependence on worldly wealth, which brought spiritual poverty, Christ offered true spiritual riches. In place of relying on their outer appearance, which left them spiritually naked, Christ offered to clothe them in his own righteousness. Instead of a physical salve to heal blur, blurred sight, Jesus offered them spiritual salve to cure their spiritual cataracts. Here's the point. As long as you or I believe that we can meet our own needs... Through our own abilities and our own wealth, we will never truly see things that we truly need that Jesus only can offer. As a result, we will go lacking all the while believing that we have everything we need. And in the process, in the process, our testimony to a lost and dying world will constantly decrease. Because you want to know why? Because we will begin to pursue the same goals and the same things that they're pursuing. And they will look at us and go, that's why they're hypocrites. They say one thing and yet they live completely differently. And we will have become tepid. And we will have become ineffectual for the kingdom of God. So in his corrective counsel, Jesus tells these Laodiceans and he tells us that we must turn and seek his riches. And then he tells us to zealously repent. Jesus says in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Before we get to the zealous repentance, let me just... Jesus had told these believers in a very emphatic way, You make me sick to my stomach. You make me want to vomit. 
Now, I don't know about you, but whenever someone has said something like that to me, my first thought is they're not going to turn right around in the next breath and tell me how much they love me. But that's what Jesus does. In fact, I've mentioned this so many times, and I have to stop here, and I have to make sure that you're aware of it. You know, at the moment when all the rest of us would probably just get frustrated with somebody and we're like, we're done with them. I've had all of them that I can put up with. I'm turning my back and I'm done. When, 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 when we're at the point with someone else in our lives who has broken our trust and, and taken advantage of the scenario and, and we just, we're ready to throw them down like a used cigarette butt and just grind them underneath our feet, that's the very moment that Jesus shows mercy and love and acceptance. What we see here is that they had made him physically ill and yet he says, I love you and my love toward you is going to be demonstrated in this specific way. I'm going to rebuke you and chasten you. Listen, if the Lord is pointing His finger into your heart right now and making you uncomfortable and He is causing there to be conviction in your life because He has already brought out some things that you are trusting in that is different from Him and if He's already alerting you to the lukewarmness of your heart, how you have just cooled to His his hot passion of love for you. Don't turn away from that. Don't think that that's God hurting you. No, that is God demonstrating His love toward you. He loves you enough not to let you to continue going down the road of lukewarm behavior and living. It's just like we are with our children. I love my kids enough to rebuke them and to chasten them when they are heading down paths that they ought not to head down. Because if they continue going down that, all that awaits them is destruction and hardship and pain. And so it is out of love that I chasten them. It is out of love that God chastens you. And it's how He displays the fact that He is gracious and that He is merciful and that He is slow to anger and that He is abounding in loving kindness. And I want you to know that because of that, His whole purpose in the chastening is so that He can bring you to repentance. Literally, the, the text says that they, they needed to be zealous and they needed to repent. To be zealous, they needed to turn from their half-hearted approach to their faith and they needed to present before a pagan world their undying commitment to Christ. So this is the corrective counsel that Jesus gives. And then in verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Sometimes, and I have no doubt that you've heard it used this way, this verse is used as a form of an evangelical appeal to salvation. And I agree with James Hamilton who writes that while the, evangelist, the evangelistic use of the verse matches the spirit of the verse, that's not how Jesus intended it in its context. After all, Jesus is writing to a church. He is writing to a constituted body of believers who presumably had already invited Jesus into their heart to be their Savior. And that is that thought that makes this image all the more fantastic to behold because you see, Jesus pictures himself on the outside knocking to get back in. What greater picture could demonstrate the effects of self-deception and self-sufficiency than to be shown how those attitudes ultimately force Jesus out? 
of the rightful place where he deserves to be and where his reign should be felt the most. I also find it amazing that Jesus, the same Christ who warned the church in Sardis that if they did not repent of their sins, that he would come like a thief in the night and he would bring his judgment. Well, here he is pictured patiently standing outside the door, knocking. I'm also intrigued by the fact that in the the letter to the church in Philadelphia, he presented himself as the one who opens and no one can shut and the one who shuts and no one can open. And yet here he is. Knocking, asking for the door to be opened to him. It is, as one has put it, the great invitation, and placed as it is at this point in the letter, we must see that it is a call to the church to commune. That's the next point that I want you to see. It is a call to commune with him. Jesus says if those lukewarm believers who had become so self-deceived that they no longer realized how desperately they needed him would come to their senses and hear him knocking, if they would repent of their self-sufficiency and their trust in their false riches, then he would come into them and restore the relationship that he had with them. This is nothing short than a call to personal intimacy with Christ. And it is a call to commune to him. But also notice, Jesus goes on to continue with the same two calls that he had put in every other letter. He calls them to overcome. He calls them to conquer. He calls them to be victorious. And he says, to those who will be victorious, to those who will conquer, he says, I'll not only share intimate fellowship with you, but I will also share my reign with you. He says, I will grant to the one who conquers to sit with me on my throne. And then finally, Jesus concludes with the call to comprehend. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What the Lord says to the church here in Laodicea is just as important to you and to me as it was to them. And we must comprehend what he says and we must apply it. And so what has the Spirit said that we must hear and that we must comprehend? Well, I have stated it this way in my sermon in a sentence. Those who deceive themselves and neglect complete and total dependence on Christ are nauseating to him. But he graciously offers his fellowship to those who will repent, open the door, and rely on him for their every need. As we come to a conclusion this morning, I want to ask you just to, I want to ask a penetrating question that I want you to truly consider. When you sense hope in your life, when you anticipate that your life is about to get better, what provokes that hope? What causes you to think things are about to be better than they were before? Is it the thought of having more money? Is it the thought of a different relationship? Is it, is it the acquisition of a new toy or a new thing, a new something? Is it success in business or in some kind of personal venture? What causes joy to spring up within you and produce hope within you? Is it any of those kind of things that I just mentioned or is your anticipation of hope linked to the thought of having more of Jesus? 
I want you to know I believe that is what is at the root of all that Jesus has exposed in this letter. And the most frightful thing about it is that the real problem in Laodicea was that they didn't realize that they had a problem. Their hope and their confidence rested in their riches and so they did not perceive that they needed anything. And to them, Jesus says, you are in the greatest need of all because you're self-deceived. They had turned their eyes away from Christ and they had pursued their satisfaction and their security and other things. And as a result, slowly but surely, they had become tepid. They had become not hot, not cold. They were lukewarm. And James Hamilton concludes this way, and I will as well. Unless we consciously, explicitly remind ourselves of the absolute purity of God, which will provoke recognition of our impurity, we will slip into thinking that we're doing pretty well. We must remind ourselves of the gospel and its truths. We must allow the reality of the gospel to communicate to, our, to, to us our constant ongoing need for Christ. If we don't, he says, other needs will subtly and surely come to, meet, to seem more urgent, more significant, more relevant. If we do not carefully and consciously oppose the growing significance of these felt needs, which are really false needs, we will find that the world and its agenda is what is revealed to us. While for all practical purposes, God and the gospel and the kingdom will be irrelevant. We will have become lukewarm. Perhaps that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that he's brought to your life. Perhaps the Lord is diagnosing you as being lukewarm. If so, I want you to know he's knocking at the door of your heart. The question is, will you answer him? Will you allow him in? Will you receive the Lord Jesus? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough not to leave us where we are. You love us enough that you will bring conviction into our lives and that you will rattle the pots and the pans in the kitchen of our heart. You will disturb us. You will bring discipline into our lives so that we may turn from our sinful ways. And sometimes we think of sin as just being something actively that we're doing. And while that is absolutely the case, we must also recognize, as is the case here, sin oftentimes is just throwing things into neutral and not pursuing you, finding our hope in other things, being distracted. And consequently, we end up being lukewarm. I pray that your convicting power of your Holy Spirit would work in each of our hearts. Help us to repent, to turn from those behaviors, and to embrace you. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.